Welcome to Mending on the Fly, the podcast about healing, fly fishing, and conservation. I'm Devin, your guide as we float through engaging discussions, expert insights, and stories from the water. Whether you're a seasoned angler perfecting your fly tying, a beginner overwhelmed by rods, reels, lines, leaders, and tippet, or a person interested in protecting our waterways, join us on this journey of healing as we uncover the benefits of fly fishing and being outside. Ready to wade into the world of fly fishing? I will see you on the water. Today we're lucky to wade into fly fishing, nature, and craftsmanship with a truly remarkable individual named Dave Zielinski. Dave's passion and expertise span fascinating realms of fly fishing, cicada emergences, and the art of wooden boat making. He has pursued the cicada cycles around the states for decades, translating these natural phenomena into unparalleled fly fishing experiences. His journey from crafting his first drift boat to exploring the waters during the rare cicada emergences showcase a profound connection to nature and the waters he navigates. Beyond his own adventures, Dave authored a book entitled Cicada Madness, and he crafts wooden drift boats embodying the spirit of fly fishing. His story is not just one of personal achievement, but a testament to the bonds formed through shared experiences on the water, a deep appreciation for local ecosystems, and the continuous pursuit of knowledge. Thank you for joining me as I learn from the life and insights of Dave Zielinski, a man who lives at the confluence of tradition, passion, and the great outdoors. Dave, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Mending on the Fly. Hey, thanks for having me. That was, that was a beautiful introduction. <laughs> really great. <laughs> Before we get started, I don't even know where I saw this or heard this, but you're from outside of Buffalo. I am. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And I'm I'm outside of Rochester and and just a massive Buffalo Bills fan. <laughs> I, and I wonder if we share the heartache. Mm, well, or if you've you, moved you, on you, to the you Eagles and my, and Steelers. my yeah, you you and my mom share the heartache. A crazy <laughs> Bills fan, yeah. But I, I did. I, I grew up outside of Buffalo. Okay. In, ma- in matter of fact, I could hear. We lived so close to Rich Stadium on the edge of Orchard Park in Hamburg, New York. Okay, we could, yeah, we could hear we could hear the roar of the games. You could hear the Grateful Dead when they played in July Fourth. <laughs> no were, kidding. Yeah, that's oh, yeah. awesome. Yeah. What part of Rochester are you from, or like what? Penfield, little Penfield. town named Penfield. Yeah. Yeah, I have friends that are still there. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a small world. Yeah, Penfield was a great little town to grow up in, and yeah, I miss it. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, I especially miss the snow. I I have to <laughs> say that I'm a, you know, growing up there, it's like the snow is you know what snow is part of life. <laughs> yeah, so it's I I miss it, but. But anyways, the way you start off your book, right on the dedication page, yep. you say that this book is dedicated to my father, who always had the time to take me fishing. Can you walk me through just your personal journey finding fly fishing yeah. and the importance of your, your father in that journey? Yeah. I started fishing. My earliest memories were fishing. I don't. I don't remember anything 
my I really mean that my earliest memories are fishing <laughs> with my dad and it wasn't fly fishing it was gear fishing whatever kind of fishing didn't really matter it was fishing my dad loved to fish yeah but yeah that that's how it that's how fishing started and just always wanting to be outside you mentioned football and the bills and stuff and i i never i wasn't a sporting guy i, I never even from a young age i never played a sport i i wanted i liked the i liked adventure and i liked i liked like individual things like riding sure. bikes racing bikes jumping bikes in the woods on trails yeah. and skateboarding was a huge part of my life and actually still is quite a bit actually i i if i scroll through my instagram and any day it's probably 50 percent skateboarding and 50 percent well <laughs> Are you... yeah probably 50 percent skateboarding 30 percent fishing and 20 percent short-haired dogs <laughs> <laughs> that's a li have yeah. you have you moved on to like longboards yet or mm -hmm. uh are you still like shredding i wouldn't say i'm shredding but i'm still rolling around <laughs> for sure and i'm on the verge right. of 50 so i think i'm still winning a little bit um yeah, but yeah i still love it. it i love to follow it i love to i love to do it of course not to the to the level that I was when I was a teenager and all that. But yeah, my activities were kind of loner sports or whatever you want to call them, like skateboarding and, and riding bikes and all that. And, and just love to be outside, be in the woods. And my, my parents didn't ever pushed us towards sports or anything. They were very like, mm -hmm. I don't know, like hippies. Try everything, try what you want, find what you love. And it was, yeah. that was the greatest way to grow up. I, I, and I actually, that's how I raised my kids too. Let's expose them to a ton of things and see what sticks and find your passion and all that. And for me, it was, it was just being outside. It was, oh, it was always fishing. It was fishing, 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 skateboarding, and then playing music and, and all that. And that was all my dad, like my, my dad played music, my dad fished and everything. So Take it to fly fishing. I was about the age 13 or so, and my dad took me to one of these big, well, like the Buffalo Outdoor Show is what he mm -hmm. took me to, actually. Big sporting show with all the all the outfitters and stuff would show up there and show their big mounts and they'd book trips and all that. When I started, I begged my dad for a fly rod, and at that show, he bought me one. Bought me a little oh, South that's... Bend fiberglass kit. Oh, and that's and awesome. oddly enough, on... on and, and sad enough, just recently, Kathy Beck had just passed away a couple of days ago. Yeah, and, I saw um, that. She gave me my first flies at that show. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. I wish I still had them. But uh, yeah, she she they had a booth there and a table. I, hadn't, I didn't know who, any, who anybody was. When I was 13 years old and had my brand new South Bend rig and was carrying it around there and, and went over and, and there was flies. And they were one of the few, if maybe the only, fly fishing tables there at that big show. And I remember her giving me a, a little box of flies and there was just like six or eight patterns in there and stuff. An so. Absolute legend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The originals, <laughs> some of the yeah. originals, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's that was that was the start of it. And then didn't know anybody who fly fished. My dad didn't know anybody who fly fished. So it was a lot of just he would bring books home for me and I would read those books and try to emulate and go out in the yard and ruin a fly line on the grass and didn't know what I was doing, but learning <laughs> and then just yeah. taking it to the water and then doing it. I told the story before on other places, but my first trout on a fly was in one of those tributaries to Lake Erie there around around the Buffalo, around Hamburg there. 
It was actually 18 Mile Creek, which if you know that, between Hamburg and Eden, right on the uh, west side of west side of Buffalo. Yeah, west side. So he took me, I begged him to go fishing. That's where that dedication comes from, as I think that I begged him to take me fishing that day, and he took me. <laughs> and he, always, he he wasn't too hard to twist his arm to take you fishing. So he took me fishing, and I took that fly rod. I only took that fly rod. And I remember, I didn't know whatever, I, I threw that that fly in, and it was actually a dry fly. It was actually an Adams. Okay. And it was sinking, so I didn't know, sinking, floating, whatever. Yeah. Never seen a mayfly hatch by then, probably. And it was fall, so steelhead were running, the Great Lakes steelhead. And I threw that fly in there, and I watched it sunk and went under and one of those shale ledges and all that. And I watched the fly line dart, like move forward. I was like, hmm, set the hook and blew up. And it was a Great Lakes oh. steelhead. <laughs> so my, my first my first trout was like 20 some inch steelhead landed it and everything took it home oh. cracked it on the head ate it <laughs> and that's day one yeah that was that was pretty much fly one fish. of the first ones yeah, yeah. oh man yeah yeah that's got to uh, the tug is the drug that yeah that got set early yeah yeah cool. so that so was you the, were... the start of it yeah yeah so you were you were young 13 ish yeah. i guess around that time mm-hmm. But then you wind up in Pennsylvania. How, yeah. Where's the Where's the move from? Yeah. So Buffalo the the PA? fly fishing thing, ten to thirteen, somewhere in there. I don't know, something like that. And then, but so my mom's family was from outside of Erie, Pennsylvania, and lived mm-hmm. out in the country there, dirt road, old farm. It's been in the family a long time, and they we would go visit there. It was It wasn't very far. It was an hour and a half or something away from home in New York. And the farm down the road had this beautiful farm pond, and I would just I'd walk down there and fish it all day from morning till dark. That's where I was going to be, full of big largemouth bass, and I would just catch every one of them in there and bluegills and everything. So I was like really learning how to fish. That was my that was my training grounds. <laughs> so okay, that the Pennsylvania awesome. connection starts there. Yeah. So we'd spend a lot of our time in the summers there. My grandparents lived there and I, I would stay with them for weeks at a time in the summer when school goes out and all that, just yeah, to be cool. there, just to be able to go fish. And I just love to be outside. And what an adventure too, if it's yeah. that kind of off the beaten path. Yeah. It was like, it's not dirt anymore, but it was a dirt road, dusty dirt road. And you take your bike and your gear and, ride it as far down the road and go to this pond and stay there all day take food whatever and (laughs) there's no cell phones there's no none of that it was like such simple time (laughs) and it was just like fish it was pretty hardcore it was was great and then as a kid you have your bb guns and whatever and you're out right do anything you want there's woods and no one really they knew where i was going to be i was going to be somewhere running around a woods or creek or pond (laughs) yeah yeah that's awesome and then so quite the it, crucible yeah right it, 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 you're always chasing for that again too right it's really funny mm-hmm. how that comes back around because yeah. that left that leaves an impression and if you skip a whole bunch of years if you look where i ended up now i live in a very similar situation on a little <laughs> old road in the country with a farm pond down the road and woods all around and neighbors and let you trespass and everything else and it's just it's some it's a funny thing to think about that it just comes back around it's it's really cool but if you rewind brain yeah yeah it's part of who you are 
But if you rewind and like the Pennsylvania thing is there, I, I ended up so th out of through high school, finished high school in New York there. And then I ended up at Penn State and I went to college there and then ended up in Pennsylvania that way. But around the, around my senior year, first year of college, like there was the, it was the, 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 the kind of tragic times in our family is my, my parents were actually in transition of moving from New York and my grandparents had given them a piece of property where they were going to build their dream home. And in the middle of that, like literally a hole dug, a first floor up, my dad ended up having a fatal heart attack and dying. Mm. I was 18, 19, whatever you are, your first year of college, first semester, didn't finish, just took the like leave of absence and had to deal with all that kind of stuff. And so my, my, we were, they were in the process of moving there and I was already in, in, in school and college. My older brother was at Fredonia actually university okay. and my young, my younger brother was 10. And uh, so it was, it was hard times for a number of years there, three or four years. I, I ended up just working and, um, and then I ended up going back to school. I always felt that I needed to go back. I worked some pretty crappy jobs and was like, this probably isn't the future. <laughs> like if I should go back yeah. to school, finish school and, and stuff, but I ended up remaining in Pennsylvania and then moving south to, I'm about 45 minutes to an hour east of Pittsburgh. Okay. No. We are going to delve into the mental health aspects or benefits that fly fishing can provide. But before I forget, I, I know you said Penn State. Did you ever, were you able to take a class with Joe Humphreys or interact with him at all? No, I mean, I've interacted with him. And George Daniel is the, the <clears throat> latest guy in those, in those shoes. But no, so clarification, I went to Penn State. I went to a branch campus. I went to oh, okay. Penn State. Barron, which is outside of Erie. So Got it. Um, that's where I went to school. But I spent a lot of time in Center County in central PA. So no, I didn't, wasn't able to take those courses because those were all, those were at main campus. Okay. Yeah. I mean, what a dream it would have been to take those too. Yeah. I've talked to yeah. all those guys. Greg Hoover at the time was, was entomology department, something, something there for a while. And then yeah. um, Joe for a long time, I've seen Joe on the on the stream several times and George Daniel talked to, I'll actually see him this weekend. And then we have a, we have a TU show here and, and he's, he's presenting at it. Oh, cool. Um, okay. But yeah, I did. I went to this branch campus, so we didn't have that course intro okay. to fly fishing. <laughs> and so has this passion of yours for the water, the outdoors, has that now spread to your kids at all? Or are they, just into totally different stuff. And and I ask because I've got two boys, a two and a yeah. four-year-old. I don't know if you could just hear them crying <laughs> in the hallway not too long ago. Thank you, Chrissy, if you're listening for putting them <laughs> to bed tonight. But it, yeah, has it spread to them yet? Have they, do they have the itch? They, they so I've taken them all. And, and it's fun because they, they do. And I think... I think we leave this as when you're young like that, you, you, you come in, sometimes you come and leave things, right? You, you do things for a while and then you leave it and then you come back to it and whatever. I know a lot of friends now who left skateboarding behind back in their teens, but they're coming back to it now. It's funny. It's, it's, 
but it's it it's a part of your fabric i think but with my kids we we did a we did a lot of time outdoors spent a lot of time in the boats on the water and never pushing it but always at always taking them and always invite like bringing them along and i can remember all of the times my kids caught great fish or shot a turkey or whatever it it is and they don't they they're just on different parts of their life my youngest is still so i have a 22 year old who's graduating college this year which is crazy to me nice congrats Um, yeah thanks and then i have one that's 20 and then and she's in her second year college and then i have a 16 year old home and you know we've done different things with all of them my oldest she so you know how it is like when you have the first kid and and then the second one comes along it's like kind of dad gets the first kid and that's what happened right so like i would take actually i took her in one of those backpacks 22 years ago every sunday i'd take her brookie fishing when she was tiny six months eight months (laughs) a year old whatever i'd walk her around and and fish and whatever and we do that kind of thing and and then she was my buddy like we we'd fish a lot in the boat she'd row and cast and catch fish and whatever and it was always a good time and my middle one likes not so much is crazy about the fishing but loves the outdoors and i've taken her on western trips and we hike and whatever and yeah, it's pretty cool. She plays my photographer when I catch fish and whatnot. Yeah. So she she just loves to be out, out in the wilderness and stuff. So that's, that's cool. Awesome. And then the younger one, I say this to a lot of people, she probably can draw, row a drift boat better than most of my buddies. <laughs> I, yeah, is she just like... She's, she's natural. I watch yeah. her. Like I never... I've taught her a few things. And then like when we're in the boat and I just sit behind her and watch her and I'm like... She feels it. She feels the water and like she just a subtle oar stroke this or that. Like I can tell like that's you can't teach that. It's it's become intuition and that's, it's pretty cool. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty neat. <laughs> Who know, Maybe she'll be guiding or something out in Colorado, <laughs> San Miguel or something. That'd be cool. Yeah. So before we get into cicadas and drift boats, yeah. which we will just learning that your dad passed when you were mm-hmm. 18 my dad passed oh. later but the morning my oldest son was born oh, and dude. and so there was this like obviously there's a lot of emotion that day you got the <laughs> like whole, a, whole thing a variety yeah. of emotion but that and and going back to what you said about taking a pause i mean like when i was 9 my parents brought me to my first orvis store and got me casting lessons and and the basic yeah. $35 fly tying kit at the time. Yeah, yeah, cool. And so I would tie like enormous pink. They weren't flies. They were just art projects yeah. at that point. Yeah, there were um, no rules. <laughs> there were no rules. I mean, I still do that to some degree. Yeah. But I took a long break from fly fishing. When my dad passed, I realized uh, something happened and I was able to kind of like get a more realistic picture of my own emotions somehow. I don't even know if that really explains it, but that's, I guess, how I felt. And then fast forward a year, we were overseas, and then we returned to the States, and I rediscovered fly fishing again in, like, 2021. And how, for me, it's it's now a pillar of my mental health is is just getting outside. Fly fishing is really 
the main way I can do that and go mm-hmm. explore these random corners of Maryland and Virginia. So how much did your father's death impact your fly fishing? Did you just stop fly fishing or did it? I think I did it. Were you able to help? Okay. <laughs> yeah. It was the easiest escape. I mean, it yeah. was just, the, it was the easiest escape to like, to completely just go and wade wait in a river and just be focused on something, fish rising on the far bank and getting, trying to get a right drift. And for like fleeting moments, you were normal. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's and then I saw on Brood Five your yeah. video, which is available on YouTube and on the website for anyone yep. that's interested. It's a great video, really well put together, and I think you know not only highlights it, you and your drift boats, but just the the spirit of fly fishing in general. But there's one point in the video where you guys have a car accident when like a little spat <laughs> before. <laughs> yeah, a little car accident. Yeah. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. you know, in the video, I was grateful that you guys mentioned that you decided to just hop in the drift boat and go fish for a few minutes Damn. before getting everybody on board and, and heading down the river. Can you just talk about that and that decision yeah, I to, mean, it's, and how it's, it's cleared it's, your head a little bit? So with fly fishing and me, it's something that we obsess about. And if you're like me, I mean, I, I, I don't think I can make it through the day without fishing, thinking about fishing. <laughs> yeah. So it's yep. a fabric of like who you are and it's a part of you and you're, you're who you are because of a lot of things. It's your life experiences it's what you love, what you live for, what you, everything, the music you listen to, all this stuff. And if you take any of that stuff away, you start to be less of who you are, I think. Mm-hmm. So I get, I text, text a buddy and be like, I did this the other day. I was like, man, I really need to touch a fish. <laughs> I really need to touch a fish. It's been a while. So it's that kind of thing. Like you're, you, you definitely need it. But like in the, in that film, yeah, one way street made a left turn, towing a drift boat. And this guy was flying, blew a red light. And I didn't see him until he was in my, in, re- in, your in car. my mirror, in my car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was a bad day for, for him. Um, he told me, you know, he told me, he said, I'm sorry, you know, I, I didn't see you there. And I probably, you know, made a mistake too. I was doing a lane change and whatnot. And it just sucked all the way around. And that guy told me, he said, my, my father died this morning. And so, oh God, you don't need this. Like, it's, no yeah. one needed it. So it sucked. But everybody was okay. And yeah, then we got the, t- the truck take. You couldn't drive it. It told I told the front end and like it my left wheel was laying sideways so it was like broke <laughs> broke tire yeah. rod broke control arm and all that um so they get towed it off and we were we were waiting for the other guys to run back to camp to get another truck and and um wade james who filmed that and put that all together gets all the credit for making that film i mean he did a phenomenal he's a videographer and did a phenomenal job with the product yeah it was a it was a beautiful film super well done could like amazing and he is he's made some other synths that are just out of this world but i was just like man i i just need to get out get i just need to go out just go feel the water and clear my head and whatever and then we are all 
we were all in a bad mood and yelling at each other and whatever. So we all made up and, and got on with the fishing and it was therapeutic for everybody. I can remember even that day, like you just just wrecked a truck and could have been worse and this and that. And you shook up and that shook up feeling hangs around. But I can remember that day that, that, that feeling didn't hang around a lot, very long because we were fishing and the fishing was so good that day and the cicadas were screaming all was right with the world. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, I, it, it fixed it. <laughs> right. In a matter of minutes. Yeah. 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 Right. And it could have been anything. I mean, you could have just woken up yeah. upset about something. Yeah. Yeah. I find that fly fishing can have the same effect. Even if it's not just like a singular uh, incident or something like that. It's like broader anxieties or whatever. I mean, that yeah. stuff just disappears when you're on the water. Yeah, um, it's it's definitely therapeutic for me. I mean, I, I maybe dangerously sometimes it's an escape that it just, and sometimes you don't want to deal with something, you go and escape. You know? I'm going to go <laughs> run off to the woods bit. and fish. You know? <laughs> so, uh, but maybe that gives you also clarity on how to deal with whatever you'd been dealing with. Get, like yeah, I've run I'm, out of here, I work from home and, you know, run out of here of like just I, I like my job and, and stuff, but there's days, everybody has those days and for sure. you know, things are coming at you from every angle and whatever. And it's, oh man, I just need to r- run down to the pond before dinner and it's, it's walking distance and, and go and catch 10 bluegill on a dry fly. And, and then you, then you sit there and you go, man, why don't I do this more often? It's right here and it's take yep, advantage life. of it. Don't, don't let it become just, uh, take it for granted and, and then you, yeah. you're better and you walk home and you're clear again and now you're like okay i have perspective on tomorrow then yeah. here's what i'm gonna tackle first and all that so for sure yeah we need that it's it's like such an important healthy pause to take especially before you hit reply all oh email. yeah dude yeah you gotta, you gotta walk away <laughs> Maybe. Write to, it feels good to write that email or whatever don't Save hit it. send yeah <laughs> delete it <laughs> delete it get it out yeah. and then go take a walk and go fish right and, uh, and it's and, you know, in and i mean i tell you like i i don't know how old you are but i i told you i'm on the verge of 50 so we remember this 40. world you, of, you're about 10 years ahead of me okay but you right. you look 10 years younger Nah, there's no way. <laughs> well, thank you, but I don't believe you. You're being nice. <laughs> mm, no, you look good. It's all that skateboarding. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but the, the 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 childhood we grew up with. I mentioned the dirt road. You know, go and find me a dirt road today. And and right. we are so bombarded with everything, by every second of the day the phone, the whatever, we're all guilty of it. I'm guilty of it too. Instagram yep. and all that stuff. You're in, and what's dangerous about that stuff is like the comparison it has on yourself. Right. So if you could be like, Oh, look at this guy, he's travels everywhere and catches fish everywhere. And why can't I, and don't fall into that stuff. Yep. There's great things right around you. Like don't, don't lose sight. And that was, it's just, it's hard for kids today. I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't envy him. It's well, just... that's great advice. I mean, even me, I'm just getting into this. I wasn't on Facebook for probably 12 years, 14 years, but getting into yeah. this now with the podcast and just trying to start something, we'll see where it goes. I mean, it's heavy. The only way to do it is through social media. 
I know. And yeah. man, the draw is yeah. is there. It's real. And yeah. checking the analytics and uh-huh. doing this <laughs> and that when it could be out fly fishing or tying a couple flies. It's an important perspective to remember for sure. Yeah, I, I wrote a book in the in the social media age and nobody reads books or something. I don't know. But my book <laughs> sold pretty well. It's still selling pretty well. But but the, you're right. To sell a to sell a book, you have to have Instagram. You have to have social media. You have to have a presence. And the thing is, you are irrelevant if you don't post every day. And I don't right. post every day and I can see it in what you said, the analytics and stuff. And it's, man, you made a big banger post a couple of days ago and it got all this attention. And then you did another one and it, and it went up and then it was like, the cliff. I took three days off and it's sure it has been, <laughs> you don't exist yeah. anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's important. Yeah. You got to go into it purposefully and understand that it's just going to be what it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless your goal is to have hundreds of thousands of followers and subscribers and then you got to grind, but then you're not fly fishing either. You're not. Yeah. I, I mean, it's something for everybody. That's not for me. I, I, yeah. What I, what I like about, about it, and we can take that. That's a, that's an interesting avenue, but like I've met, I met you here, right? So I met some people who've become lifelong friends through all this stuff. So there's not all this, you, you'll find your little group. And I think that's cool. I don't want, I don't need that hundred thousand follower group or 1 million follower group, but like that, that small of connection. Like I have, I have a, I have a thing on my Instagram right now with all these guys that are just like me that are about the same age that fly fished and skateboarded and listened to punk rock music. And we all have this common thing. And we, we had, I've never met half of the, most of these people in real life, but we right. created this little group and we send videos of skate tricks or punk rock stuff. I, I found a flyer the other day from an old show and I put a picture <laughs> of it and posted it to them. And they were like, Oh my God, I saw them in 1989. And it's, like you right, found your people is, and I love that. Yeah, like, right. That's a great point. Yeah. I would not have found you. I wouldn't have mm-hmm. found Susan Gates, who I just yeah. talked to from Casting for Recovery and Allie Cunningham from Science on the Fly. So yeah, right. There there are good aspects. It's just the balance. Yeah, yeah. So Put it down. Yeah. Yeah. So cicadas. Yeah. I've not read your entire book yet, but I did get through a good chunk of it. The obviously I'm looking more at the the Maryland side of things mm. and Pennsylvania, but I know oh we have a guest my oh, cool. two year old's coming in sorry hey oh is Mama doing your nap time okay okay good night Jax love you okay sorry yeah he, he's he's a wild man wild. yeah he's yeah he I mean he's gonna be a ham and i can't wait to see it awesome so the the book so i've learned i knew next to nothing about cicadas before starting to research for our chat and i'm certainly not an expert now but i can give the broad overview that there are certain species with a 17 year cycle mm-hmm. a 13 year cycle in some regions and countries there are annual cycles mm-hmm. You've got some great charts in here for folks that might be interested, like on pages 
33 and 34. There's great charts for the U.S. where you really I, uh, give the specific cycles and the coloration and notes and body size so that you can tie your flies accordingly, which is incredibly helpful. So thank yeah. you for doing that, by the way. <laughs> that should be a major selling point of the book, I think. Why don't we start with just your kind of broad overview of what cicadas are? And and then I've got a list of some pretty specific questions. Okay. But yeah, yeah so we can... I can dive right into that. So one of the largest groups of insects in existence is the cicada. There's mm. probably 3,000 to 3,500 different species globally, worldwide. And in particular, so my book in particular, the scope is limited to North America. And there's there's some there's a there's a group of cicadas that are very very interesting that only exist in North America and these are the periodical cicadas. So a cicada is what's known as a true bug, and a true bug is characterized by a couple things. They have this long beak like a straw on their mm -hmm. face. They don't have a mouth, but that's their mouth parts, and that is used solely to pierce into vegetation. And suck out the sap, and that's the and, food. And and I think I read that appendage mm -hmm. is with them for their entire life. Yeah, yeah, they have it as yeah, adults. That's not, uh, they don't okay. use it much as adults, but uh, yeah. yeah. So it's a it's a terrestrial insect. So this is not a but. What's what's crazy for us, and what's interesting for us is we've all heard of hopper fishing and cricket fishing and other terrestrials, but the cicada is also a terrestrial. It lives underground for most mm -hmm. of its life. And, and when it emerges, it morphs into an adult winged insect. So it's, it sheds its nymphal shuck, just like a lot of our aquatic bugs and a lot of other different kinds of bugs, and then flies around. The whole purpose is to mate and die, it, just like our mayflies, right? Just like mm -hmm. your caddisflies. This is a ground animal, though, so it comes out of the earth. So in the United States, which is just the weirdest thing, is is and this is funny because the book's dated already, but there was just a, and there's how science is, there's always something being discovered, especially in the natural world. They just found that somewhere in Africa, they've identified a periodical species. And periodical oh, means that, what does periodical mean? Periodical means that all, all the members of that family of insect emerge in a synchronized fashion. So, they are all happening at once. They are not some happening this year, some happening next year. They are, a, they are an age class of themselves. And in this case, 13 years or 17 years. And they, so in, in the, in the 2004, there was an emergence. And then 17 years later, which is this year, the babies, the eggs survived into bugs that, emerge all of them will hatch there would be no leftovers they will all synchronized emergence so that's the key about periodical cicadas and it only exists in the the united states and then this new uh, identified species somewhere in in africa 
and that's just this year, like just found this out, like new information. Like right. Because your, your book was published in 2023, right? <laughs> yeah. It came out in October. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so, but like crazy, crazy stuff. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So the other kind of cicada is much similar to a lot of the other bugs that you know, and these would be annual species, right? So what is an annual species means that every year there's some population of bugs that happen. Some years there might be more, and some years there might be a little bit less, but you're always going to be able to find them. So mm -hmm. when we talk about annual cicadas, where you live in Maryland, where I live in Pennsylvania is about the same. You're just a little bit south of me, but August, July, August, September, you're every year going to have some annual cicadas. And these, these will emerge quietly and they'll go and find their mates and you'll hear them singing and where they're, there's more, you're going to hear them congregate and sing, but it's not going to be this. The difference is there's not going to be a billion bucks. <laughs> right. Well, that's interesting. So, cause we had the 2023, was it just last year that we you had, had the brood huge X, emergence? 2021. Or brood X yeah. in 2021. Okay. So I was here for that. But then, yeah, it's always, we, we go camping a lot and all that, yeah. but I'm always like, why are there still cicadas? That's uh, like that can't be, but annuals. Yep. Annuals. Which are highly okay. fishable. I love fishing annual cicadas in the late summer. About how, the time much when the kids, a, kids go back to school, it is awesome. It's hunting season. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what are particularly for the 17 year periodicals mm -hmm. what are the evolutionary benefits to the extended periods being underground yeah as compared to other insects so the cool thing about cicadas is there's some science that's proven and there's a lot of we think theory like mystery yeah. and theory and yeah all. and i love that i i think it's because people are studying it all the time and learning new things and there's a lot of really we talked about technology, but there's a lot of new technology that's really helping understand periodical cicadas and the why mm -hmm. anymore. But to answer your question, so it, it's it's believed to be an evolutionary thing. So I talk about this a bit in the book of there, there was some parent species that had a that had a life cycle lengthening that maybe occurred due to, again, here's what we think, due to climatic change events, natural disasters, all this kind of stuff that kind of forced them, like an ice age kind of forced them to freeze or Stay. something, right? Or whatever, yeah. killed things off or whatever. So there's all these things. There's, there's, there's speculation about the regionality of the periodical cicadas, if you look at them and you look at where all the little different broods occur and the broods are the age class years. So you mentioned brood X this year, it's uh, XIX and XIII and next year is XIV. They're divided into the year of emergence with these Roman numerals. But if you look at the map, they all fit together. So yeah. the idea, yeah, the idea there is that they got shifted around somehow, and it could be geological shifts. Interesting that the Great Lakes are north of us, 
and all this stuff is around the Great Lakes and south and pushing towards the Great Lakes, if you look from the Appalachians towards the Great Lakes. So these land shifts, there again, lots of theories. I'm not a scientist, but man, I've read everything about it and, and yeah. talked to scientists about it. And there's just these speculative events, but they, they evolved, the periodical cicadas evolved from a single parent species that they think had this life cycle lengthening. And then it settled in at some around like 13 years was the length of the life cycle. And then things got moved around. And then because of natural events, there was accelerations and the, the, some of these bugs emerged late and the, the offspring of those just evolved into 17 year cycles. So there's some sort of, some sort of divergence from that parent species in a couple directions that created this handful of periodical cicadas. And I go in this in pretty great detail in the book of these different species of cicadas. They are all classified under the, the Magicicada name. And there's, there's one called a Septendecim, Septendecula, and then a Cassini. And there's a 13-year version of each of those, and there's a 17-year version of each of those. And they, the difference is, is a little bit bigger, a little bit smaller. Coloration is still black and orange. Some are more orange, some are more black. Uh, but a real character characterization of them is they won't interbreed because the males that sing sing of a specific frequency to attract a female that can only respond to that frequency. So and and they'll they'll be emerging at the same time at the same and time. So, yeah. So all the songs the the males are all so you might have three different frequencies. Yeah. Huh. That's incredible. It's crazy. It's it's really crazy. And it just so happens like these are, you see the divergence from the parent group right there. And scientists study this and they're like, they're all 17 year cicadas. And there's these three groups, three subspecies, and they don't intermingle. They only mate with their own. And, and, they, and when they record the males singing frequencies, that's how they identify them. They could tell that's a group of Cassinis and that's a group of Septendeculas and, and whatever. And in can it. you have all three in the same yeah. spot and they'll, they're, oh God, what is the term? My biology teacher's going to kill me. But the, <laughs> no, your you biology teacher's going to be happy you're actually talking about this. <laughs> they, yeah. Well, they, I mean, they, 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 they're not predatory on one another. No, um, not at all. Okay. No, they don't care. They're, you're next to me and you're a different species, whatever. It and doesn't... do we know that that original, that first parental pair, mm-hmm. do we know how long ago? Yeah, it's in the... I'm sorry, oh, I haven't gotten head, through the it's, book yet. It's, but... it's in there. It's in there. And 3.9 3. million years ago was the 3. parent 9 species. Million. And then a divergence 2.5 million years ago. And then another half a million years so yeah interesting there's a there's a kind of a family tree in the book as well that you can you can look I at will. and and then study and for to a fly angler it doesn't really mean much back to your one question do they coexist in the same area and, and the answer is yes and in early emergences that i've fished years and years ago we never paid attention they were just cicadas they didn't really care like we didn't we didn't really understand the science or really go deep into it and 
in whatever and mostly lucked into those those events um but then understanding a little bit about them um i can tell you brood x where i fished in brood x for a whole month um you 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 could tell the difference in the calls you could start to hear the differences then mm. go and look and then you would find these huge groups of giant big orange bellied ones, right? Which were the, the septendeculas and then go on the far South end of the body of water and the little black ones, which are Cassini's were over there. So they're all occurring. It was their year to, to merge. Um, and that's just wild. Same, same kind of general area. Yeah. It's crazy. It's the, it's, I mean, that's why it's cicada madness and uh, yeah. apocalypse. You use all the terms you want. Like it's just a yeah. freak of nature. Well, and not to bore anglers to death, but I mean, I'm personally interested in the, the science behind it. So obviously cicadas are known for their, the mass emergences, yeah. particularly the periodicals that we have in North America. But what, what role do they play in the ecosystem? And how do these emergences uh, yeah. affect local ecosystems? Yeah, this is, this is a, a, a profound piece of their story of cicada's story and what they offer and yeah it, it and if you you study up on the the again the the parent species and why that why are there all these different subspecies that are just periodical you, you can actually start to look at the map of the u.s and then see the 13 year ones are in a group area themselves and the 17s are in another area but they fit together like a puzzle piece it's the craziest mm. thing so they're just crazy evolution things so the effect on the ecosystem starts at the ground level so i mentioned they have this beak protonum is the word for it if you're a scientist i probably said it wrong i like it but it's a straw that <laughs> comes off it. the beak yeah. and they poke it into the roots of trees and suck the xylem or the sap and that's where they get their their food from and hmm. there's thoughts that the amount of juvenile nymphs cicadas under the soil is aerating the soil because they're big Right, they grow fast right. to the holes a size. are like the size yeah. of a quarter. Yeah, yeah, the holes are holes are about the size, maybe between a dime and a nickel, but that's a mm, big hole, okay. right? And yeah. they run they run three feet deep, typically, right? So, mm. um, the they do aeration through moving around the tree root system, and then the it's not well understood, but at the underground level, there there's likely an effect on the tree itself for it's it's gathering of water or whatever like that they they actually help there or act as pruners on the root system hmm. because as adults they do the same thing but they come out of the ground and they create these holes which aerates the soil so there's that talk of that the sec once they're up above ground, they're edible. <laughs> so yeah, I well I saw, in Brood Five, I saw you guys eating them. So oh yeah, the, <laughs> yeah we don't eat, we don't eat a lot of them, but you gotta it's a rite of passage for a cicada emergence, man. You gotta yeah, you gotta I'm eat gonna one. have to get on that train uh -huh. soon. Yeah, it's not bad, but once they become above ground, they're edible and everything eats them. So what you'll see if you go snooping around the woods at night, you're gonna find skunks, raccoons everything getting these bugs right fresh from the ground as they start to crawl up a tree 
to hmm. to to crack out of their shell and become a winged adult. And so that starts every bird will eat them. I watch robins and blackbirds and grackles and everything eat them around my house. And and birds that'll normally so everything when that food source is available, they switch to that food source and they eat till they're sick. They eat till they can't eat anymore or they don't want to eat it anymore. So you're going to find all kinds of weirdness going on. We find snakes <laughs> eating them. We find turtles hunting them and eating them. I've seen those big giant fox squirrels on the river. Yeah. The, the big gray squirrels that are like red face, like fox squirrels mm-hmm. eating those eating cicadas like crazy. And mm-hmm. they're normally not eating that stuff, but like when it's on, it's on. In Pennsylvania, they the game commission did a study about cicada years and said directly following a cicada year, turkey populations boom every right. time. So just that mass amount of food that's available. So the food interjection to the environment, we haven't even talked about fish yet, but is huge. Everything will eat them. Well, deer, uh, deer will eat them too. I, I I would imagine they eat some. I've seen yeah, deer yeah. eat. I've seen. I just saw a video of a deer eating a snake. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I just wonder because I know. I think it's just your standard white tail. The the babies will feed on the mom's milk through fall, but then come like the end of fall, it's like they need to start eating on their own. But uh, that whole time, the the like energy consumption that the mom's going through, depending on what's around her, it's. Yeah. I wonder if there's a. I would imagine. Interesting I mean, study. Uh, yeah. George Daniels shares a story and it's in the book about seeing a black bear and fa- and cub every day, every day, oh, just, just mm. picking them off trees, just eating all day and, and stuff. So yeah, when it's available, they'll, they'll eat them. I mean, the best example of that is our carp. And when you get through the book, you're going to find that there's this love affair we have with cicadas and carp because it's, quite possibly the finest game fish that eats cicadas, <laughs> if you can mm. imagine. But a carp is a down-facing fish, spends its life on the bottom, eating stuff off the bottom. And it's built for that. Its eyes are down-facing, so it can see down and, and not up. But somehow, and I could tell you how in this book, the the cicada, the carp learns that at some point, there's all this food that's floating on top, and they switch over to it exclusively for the duration of an emergence until it's gone. That is amazing. And, I mean, that's a prime example of a fish that normally doesn't look well, and up ha- and eat up, finds it somehow, and then begins to hunt it. Yeah, right. And But, like, changes behavior. Yeah, yeah consistent it changes a consistent behavior yep quickly yeah 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 that's cool yeah really interesting it's a it's pretty amazing it is and i talk about the light bulb moment in the in the book of witnessing a carp kind of realize that those things are falling out of the sky and i'm gonna go get my own like (laughs) <laughs> pretty crazy to 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 see and all that stuff but yeah the you, you said it great there like they they altered their behavior to eat this 
food source that normally isn't available. Yeah. And I, I believe the things are that the, the nature's connected, right? Like nature yeah. provides these things for a re there's a reason it all goes together, right? When you, when you take the, when you, when you make, when you put dams up in the Pacific Northwest and we wonder why steelhead numbers are down, like, come on, you, you took away spawning habitat and you silted in the stuff above it and everything else. It's not the same anymore. There's nature has a way of taking care of itself. So these cicadas are there for a reason. And I, I think the native Americans also spoke of it as a year of an abundance of abundance that follows when these things mm. would happen. Right. Everybody's just, everybody's healthier. fat, dumb and everybody's happy. Eating. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's eating more young survive, whatever. Yeah. But the, the cool thing about to finish the cycle there is the other environmental impact that the, the cicada has is when the female cicada lays her eggs, she has this saw like blade, the ovipositor on her abdomen this thing retracts and she has this ability to slice through bark in trees. Oh, yeah. You've got a picture of that on yeah. one of the pages. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how she will deposit her eggs. And then the eggs will quickly turn into larva and that fresh young bark. Well, when you cut that, what does it do? It bleeds sap. Right. Yeah. And then some of that dies. So when you go post-emergence, like weeks after the last cicada is gone, you drive around and you'll see all the trees have dead leaves. And mm -hmm. they'll see them, they'll see these oak leaves that are hanging down brown, crispy, dried out, dead, and they'll fall to the ground. And that's again nature's they they've been dubbed nature's pruners <laughs> mm -hmm. for that reason. So they're taking care of trees in some manner there through that. And there's there's belief that that's all necessary. What sort of concerns are there around cicadas and and climate change? Well, I think I think there is some. And what is going to be interesting is is because of my advanced age, we'll be coming around the cicada emergences that I have fished before a couple times. So having that previous knowledge and data and dates on when did the first one have when did the first one emerge and then when was it fishable and is there going to be an acceleration is some of the, the thought about it everything else is happening right. sooner like another be, divergence that might i don't know if you know and, and scientists are studying that is there a possibility of brood expansion or extinction and there has been extinctions before hmm. there used to be a like a long island new york brood that has, didn't show itself in its year. So they, they've died out. And it's not like they'll come back. The like, periodical cicada, it was supposed to be there. And if it didn't happen, it's done. So when you talk mm -hmm. like climate change, it's an interesting thing that there's speculation that their periodicity is because of some climate change. Hmm. And, they're the, and through studying the bugs, like they have been a product of evolving through pretty crazy things if you think 3.9 million years ago and sure so lots of different events they actually probably had the benefit of being underground <laughs> for for times and, and things like that so when we talk about conservation we talk about what what concerns us around cicadas it comes down to wild habitat and keeping it wild 
and mature trees and they need as i explained they need to feed on tree roots when they're young and they're underground and then they need to lay their eggs in trees so if you take a hillside that had a a million cicadas on it and you deforest it and you build it into condos and parking lots they're they're gone they're not and if you if you pave over a cicada tries to go up he's stuck he's not going to burrow through burrow with concrete there is some interesting uh, some scientists studied some of that and like actually dug and whatever and they they actually did castings of cicada emergences the holes they poured like plaster down them and then dug them up and they found yeah they found like there was they were trying to go under a sidewalk and they they ended up making their way out like oh that's awesome but that's not all of them right so uh, there is that there is that concern about like urban expansion um and loss of that kind of habitat as as things become less and less wild but they're survivors when, I, when, you, when you when you go to the Savage, you talk about Savage River and all that. Like that that area had Brood X in 2021. You go to that big Savage Wilderness and you look at it and you're like, that probably is always going to be like that. There's probably a, there's always going to be skaters there, and that's like yeah. a good feeling. <laughs> yeah, it is a good feeling, yeah. especially when you see developments popping up all over. Yeah. So you mentioned that Native Americans. Mm-hmm at least some referred to it as the year of the plenty. Yeah. Can you talk at all about, and I know the cicadas we're talking about are here in the U S but what sort of like myths or symbols cicadas have represented to various people, be it here in the U S or around the world? Yeah. I didn't study that a ton, Mm. but I mean, I, it's, it's always an interesting thing. Like a lot of cultures do hold the cicada in high regard as rebirth. And then I know like Marseille, France is, they have a symbol of a cicada. Everything is cicadas there. When you go there, you can go to any gift shop and it's all cicada stuff. But yeah, I don't, I'm not an expert on it. So yeah, but uh, yeah, a lot, I know it's culturally a lot of, I mean, there was some cicada jewelry, carved jade things that were dug up in their cicadas. So they they held some significance to cultures. Yeah. Yeah. And what sort of, so you've been looking at this for for a while Hmm. and through kind of the the computer revolution starting in the 90s. (laughs) And what sort of impact have technological advances like whether it's drone surveillance or whatever mm-hmm. or, or other human-based techniques yeah. h- how have those advances affected or, or revolutionized our understanding of cicadas yeah it's actually a, a pretty relevant question because so f- so f- personally for me the internet it, it's become easier and easier to determine where we're going to go and try to fish cicadas because mm-hmm. of the availability of information on the internet. So if you go rewind the clock and go back to 2008, say, 2008 would have been brewed XIV in central Pennsylvania. But go back further to the internet in the late 90s in, a, in information availability. 
it, it was a fraction of what you have today. So right. it wasn't it wasn't our primary way to mine information about where we're we gonna go fish cicadas. It was still going to the library, still picking up the phone, calling schools, universities, and science departments, and everything you guys else. Expecting? Yeah, I, I mean, I've done it a hundred times. Yeah, I called <laughs> called all kinds of people at universities. Does anybody study cicadas there? And yeah, yeah I. And they want it. They love. They like. Holy crap! You made their day who, when you call with who, a question like that. Like, who is this wacko? What, what Let's, the hell? Yeah. Well, I think on April's podcast you were oh, talking yeah. about how fly shops all over advertise the the thing. But I mean, in your book, the map. I think it's mapped out by county. No, it's not uh, county. It's it's is region. It not county. Yeah, it's region. Okay. Well, there's this. The it's the. The Forest Service uh, distribution map. map. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that almost looks like it's broken down by county, but it, yeah. uh, that is, it's like very specific. So you've got yeah. some people. Yeah, it was, <laughs> like I mean, trying to advertise it. That's funny. Yeah, the, the funny, the funny thing with that is like misinformation was, was pretty crazy. I mean, this goes back to the what's in, what information is available. Yeah. Go, go on, go on Google right now and just put in Cicada 2024 and see what yeah. happens. You're going to find a news article from every state that says mm. the Midwest is going to be plagued with an apocalyptic number that that didn't occur for since Thomas Jefferson was president and all this. Like you're going to find that article. Oh, yeah. You'll a find a trillion it. cicadas See, expected there you go. in Maine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so 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 everybody like that that I love it because the hype is great and it's great for book sales. But I love yeah. the hype. But then I also go and read it and I go. And then I go get the map out, and I'm like, they're that's reporting not. on something that's not even going to be happening there. <laughs> and I saw that. I saw that through just maybe in the last 10 years, a few different emergencies, fly shops saying, we're getting ready for brood whatever. And I'm going there like, I chase this thing with a passion. And I'm like, then I'm like second guessing myself. I'm like, wow, they're promoting it. Are like, they? But they're going to have it? And then I start looking, I'm like, they don't know what they're talking about. Like they're not going to have it. And then, you know, I'd, I'd follow up afterwards. Like in July, yeah. Hey, how was the cicada fishing? Yeah. Oh, we didn't, it didn't have, it, it didn't happen here. They didn't come here. And I'm like, yeah, they didn't come here. I'm like, right. Oh like, boy. Like they all flew across <laughs> the country there. Yeah. yeah and like, I was aren't like, they from the ground. Yeah. I was like, all right, there's lots of misunderstandings here about these bugs. And right. Uh, At least it, it's probably from an area of just, misunderstanding it is yeah. than, it wasn't than like malicious or anything yeah no trying to trying to get sales yeah and and, and so there was that and then technology a really big one that, that i have to mention is so dr gene kritsky out of mount st joseph university in cincinnati he was a big help for me i i talked to him on a couple occasions we exchanged lots of emails some of the pictures in the book came from his way one of the premier cicada researchers today, him, and then there's a couple of fellows from a university of Connecticut that are a big cicada research. So they're, they're really advancing the science through some pretty cool stuff. And one is something that Dr. Kritsky came up with, and this is an app. You can go to your app store on your iPhone. It's called Cicada Safari. And he started this, 
in preparation for Brood X. He's in Cincinnati, which got a ton of Brood X, right? Pretty big distribution. And um, he used it as crowdsourcing information to identify the geographic distribution as well as timing on when did who first posted the first picture and when was the last one seen and so really refining using crowdsourcing to collect the information which isn't a new concept but the way we way he did it is pretty novel and created an app that basically you open up it has your gps location and everything else they urge you to take a picture of the bug and then their scientists are all looking at it and going, there's the first one. And then they drive That's over cool. there and then they, they get more information and more data. So that was a, that was an extension of, of some, and I write about it in the book. I talk about Skate Safari as well as in the 1890s, there was a scientist who worked for the Department of Agriculture that actually did the same thing through the U.S. mail. And then basically said, if you see this bug, send me a, send me a, a note or, or I'll send you your stamp back because I'm studying these insects. And, and that's actually the inspiration for Dr. Kritsky's app was that is sitting cool. around figuring out like, boy, I wish we could refine the the range and then wish, he said, wish, I wish we, we had, had an app for that. in our pocket yeah, yeah. and, and, and <laughs> right. then he was like oh my gosh so the the he he drew some funding and and got it made and it's out there and it's great for us <laughs> yeah selfishly because we're chasing it not so much for science but for, for the fish. somebody just posted a cicada on lake x in ohio and if there's one periodical cicada, I'm going to make you a, a deal right now that there's going to be a million. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I'm going. Yeah. That's funny. So, so technology has helped us. Um, it's not hindered us, I'd say. It, it Maybe it's going to hinder us. And so is this guy who wrote a book about it. But, you know, <laughs> the hype is that. that the hype is growing because we're getting there. Right. So the hype started. I watch it all the time. I type in Skate 2024 and then boom, one day in January, it was like, yep, someone's hurting for news stories because yeah. <laughs> and the hype builds. And as we get closer, the hype's going to be real and you're going to have recipes and everything else that happens every other time in every place. And- yeah. Well, that, that leads me to just, I think another question about cicadas, but yeah. what initiatives have you seen regarding raising public awareness about conservation and cicadas have you seen that are successful there hasn't been much and mm. i'm not a not an expert at at that aspect of it either but there hasn't I mean, I, been it, much other than i guess it really goes back to like wildlife preservation and i mean you see it all the time and i and like that that every the, the good thing is is they do so the media does eventually talk to scientists about it and people just don't understand. So the general public sees it and is like, creepy bugs and the pesticides come out and everything else. Mm, and it's, yeah, don't, they aren't going to hurt you They're They don't bite. They don't this, they don't that. 
and you're not going to be able to rad- eradicate them anyway. There's this thing called predator satiation. There's there's a reason there's a billion of them. It's so the yeah. species can survive and you can't kill them all. So don't even try. So there is that aspect of it. Don't don't try to kill them and don't try to use chemicals on them. And there has been right. some there has been some stuff of uh, there's people love their lawns, but chemicals are pesticides and whatever to keep nice fancy lawns but man if you got nice grove of mature trees and you're spraying your lawn you're killing quite a bit of cicadas and that's not great and you you brought up predator satiation but is there any is there any sort of negative impact of that negative impact to i mean obviously it it's great for the whatever the population is, whether it's deer or skunks yeah. or whatever, the an emergence is good for yeah for that. It's good for the at natural least that world, year. The environment. <laughs> yeah, people's big... pets get sick. I think I've heard a lot of okay. that. That my dog ate too many and is puking and sick. But so I, nature provides. I believe I'm a believer in it. It happens for provides. this reason that the, the 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 ecosystem needs the boost, and that's what that's why it happens on a cadence. It does, and these things have a way of figuring themselves out. Now, for the anglers that have listened th- through all this, and I'm just going to add a little blip in here. That's like, I promise you, we will get to fly tying and fly <laughs> fishing. Yeah, but. You have quite a few pages and a lot of descriptions about the various look and size of the cicadas. So there's a lot of guidance in there about how to tie the flies. I mean, you you take it step by step. Mm -hmm. How specific do you need to be when you're tying (laughs) flies? There's lots of patterns in that book. Yeah, there's there's lots of patterns. And, and I mean, so, obviously, you want to match the hatch, right? Yeah. But that's yeah. I mean, you you're gonna find new patterns every day from now till July, probably. And some of them are awesome. People are like, it's that's the beauty of fly tying and the innovation oh. and new materials and creative. It's it's arts and crafts. If it is, it's yeah, arts and yeah. crafts. Yeah. And I'm even since the book, I'm evolving some patterns and changing things up and identified a new wing material or this or that. And so it's always evolving and, and that, but how specific do you need to really get is not very specific. When you go to my book and you see the 59 patterns, it's like, where do you start? You start anywhere you want. Like they're all going to work for, for what you're chasing. That, that point of that section in my book is a collection of, of some proven patterns, but also if you read, almost, almost every pattern has some sort of paragraph with it of the evolution of that pattern or who developed it or where did it come from. And that, that, that was a, a very big part of the service I wanted to do is give credit to people who have done this. I'm a, I'm a relatively nobody, right? In this whole thing. And through, through my years of, of chasing this around and I made a pitch to write a book, I wrote a book, but I wanted to collect as, as many of the who's who's, and you'll see the names all through the book and contributors and people who gave me their flies. And I wanted to collect that for everybody and tell some of the story there. The, the, the cicada patterns on the Green River in Utah. There's several of them in there, and they have a they have some cicadas that are 
pretty predictable there. But there's some some guys that are still alive and some guys that are not that were cicada crazy and came up with these secret patterns <laughs> and whatever and they're in there and it was it was a little bit you know, to, to keep it alive a little bit. Right. And, and stuff. And so Dave, Dave Whitlock gave gay, I reached out to Dave Whitlock a few years ago in preparation for the book to get some of his patterns. And he sent them to me with a note and Dave passed on that next year. And, you know, so I have those and I have that story and his conversation about how he came about that pattern and things like that. You ask anybody, like everybody fishes a chubby Chernobyl, but does everybody know the history of that fly? Probably nobody does, but I wrote about it in my book. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll have to pick up the book to read yeah. about the history of the chubby Chernobyl. What, yeah. what, what, what size would you say you're usually fishing for a cicada? Yeah, fly? I'm... So periodical cicada. So if we're talking about these ones coming up, brood XIX, XIII, I'm using a number four. And I, mm. I, I use a very specific hook for most all of my periodical cicadas, and that's a Gamakatsu B10S in a number four. And I actually have a box of 100 right here. So this hook right here. There you um, go. Is my favorite hook. It's a nice razor sharp, fine wire, strong last for lots of fish, a tiny little barb you can press down or, or keep tiny, the, the micro barb. But yeah, I'm fishing a number four primarily. I actually will downsize if I'm fishing for trout, to be honest with you. So you're going to, if you're going to fish trout around some of the water that I have here, when cicadas emerge, your average trout's 14, 16 inches. Mm-hmm. You're going to get some bigger ones during cicadas for sure. And you're going to get some smaller ones and some of those big hooks will just impale the fish. And yeah. the way the cicada fly sits in the water, sitting in the film like that, they eat it and you get that dreaded kind of tongue hookup. That's yeah. fatal to fish a lot of times. So I'll downsize the pattern to a six, even an eight, like an eight long shank. I don't know, 93, 94 TMC, which is it's just your regular woolly bugger streamer hook any of them will work like that, but I'll go to a six or an eight on that. Close that gap a little bit and get a longer fly, still get the profile I want, but I don't think it hooks up any less on trout. It's, I believe it's a little bit safer for them. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to be fishing carp. Yeah. And I also don't want to tear up the trout. Yeah. The the gamma catsu hooks phenomenal for carp. Um, Okay. I, l- I like that hook a lot for carp. I mean, they just, it, it's got the right gap. It's, and they, they don't have teeth or anything in their mouth. They, they just have big rubber lips and that thing, you, you never get a bad hookup, it seems. So, um, but yeah, I'll change the hook for the, for the fish. Um, okay. But yeah. And the other kind of thing around trout, and I say this to everybody is watch your water temps, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you're fishing free stones, it's June, it's May and June when you're going to have cicada, the periodical cicadas, and that's getting into the danger zone temperature. So yeah, don't fish, go chase carp. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fish tailwaters. Uh, yeah, for sure. Well, we've got the gunpowder and the, mm-hmm. I guess the savage would still be cold enough. Yeah. Savage is great. It's cold. North branch is great, but they won't, they won't have bugs this year. So mm. I'm going to have to come up your way then. Yeah. Go south. Go year. south. All right. <laughs> yeah. 
You're not um, far. <laughs> yeah, that's true. If if you still have time, I would love to get into drift boats a little bit too. Absolutely, yeah. Cool. Talk to me a little bit about how you got into making yeah. drift boats. Yeah, so it, the story that I tell everybody is we were, my wife and I are married, just married, a couple kids, maybe actually first kid, and my wife was just raise, working home, raising the kid and stuff. And I was working and I was working actually two jobs. I was actually, by then I was an engineer. And then I was also teaching at Penn State at night and I was playing in a band, just trying to bring, bring all kinds of money in, right? As, as right. we could, it was tough, bought a house and all that. So yeah, doing the thing that all young families start doing, you're trying to get by and still obsessed with fishing all those years and all that. And we, we used to just... That was our cheap fun was to go outside and go on the river and go to the parks and fish and whatever, like didn't cost anything. So I live near the Yakagani River in Pennsylvania. And that's mm -hmm. what I guess I would call my home water. Um, one of my home waters, but the I Yock. love that place. I uh, love it top to bottom. I love the whole, I love everything it offers. And my son and I camped on it in Western Maryland last. Oh, that's a great part of yeah. it. That's the big, the small the but big falls. nasty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a great place. And I was fishing there a lot, wade fishing. And then was like, I had a little like inflatable, like little one man pontoons with the little frame and the oars for a number of years. And was like, man, I wish we had a, like drift boat would be the greatest thing. And it started then I looked at like prices of a drift boat and was like, that's cost prohibitive for me. Yep. We can't afford that. And, but then I, the other thing that I, I got from my dad was he was the ultimate do it yourselfer. So I learned how to use tools from day one. Like I was always holding the flashlight and working on cars with <laughs> them and then building things with wood and all my skate ramps and all that stuff. And so I knew how to build things. I knew to do stuff and I, I still build stuff daily. I build everything. And so I, I started looking around early internet, 2000, maybe 99, 2000, 2001, and found plans for these wood drift boats. And I said, I could do that. That's easy. So I bought a set of plans, which just wasn't that much money, which became a lifelong friend of mine, Roger Fletcher. And he wrote the book on drift boats and river dories as well. We're on the same publisher actually. And we became friends over the years, but I got the plans from him and I'm a sucker for the traditional side of things. So I want the real thing. Like I want the, that was the original. So he had an original drift boat and he redrew the lines off of it. And that's the one I wanted. And, and it just looked great and all that. So started to just gather up slowly materials and everything else. And then built it, built it in the driveway, single car garage, spent all of my time obsessing about it and getting it done and everything else and got it done. And then we had a boat and that's where it began. And, and so I know that there's obviously a significant difference between wooden boats and drift mm -hmm. boats and that are some fiberglass boats now advertise that they mm -hmm. are good in skinny water. But what, mm -hmm. what is the, what is it about a wooden boat that, kind of makes it makes it makes it the best i don't i, I don't, don't know that i'll go down the, the best because or i can't not the define best, best for you for i can define best for me and yeah. there what makes it evolution special. is great of of things but what makes a, a wood boat like 
a, the wood boat other than being made of wood. Yeah. Nothing rose lighter in the water. I can tell you that for sure. And hull design has a lot to do with how boats, has almost everything to do with the boat's performance, whether it's rubber, fiberglass, aluminum, wood. Hull design is a major factor in any boat. The material is the second factor. For me, the wood is real quiet. The design of the boats that I have, they draft very little water. Hmm. For a, an equivalent counterpart, my wood boat, so a wood boat versus the fiberglass in the same hull design, my boat's going to draft probably four or five inches less than the glass boat, and hmm. even more for an aluminum boat design. Now, again, hull designs every, is, is a big part of all of that factor there. But I, I like the lightness of them. Uh, I love the lightness in the water, the responsiveness. They're not for everybody. You got to have a place to store it. Yeah. So store your wood boat dry and it'll last a long time. I, I laugh when I hear about like the durability aspect of things. Made of, Pe- I mean, people will claim... Columbus. Yeah. People will claim, oh, fire, the most durable boat in the world is this fiberglass, whatever brand, whatever it is. And okay, until you square crack it against a rock, the same thing's going to happen to your boat as it will mine. You're still going to put a hole in the side of the hull. But guess what? (laughs) Mine's a lot easier home fix than yours is. You can't substitute good rowing skills. But the, 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 I don't know. I, 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 I like the material. I I like it because it's – I think a lot of guys like it because it's an entry point just like I had. Guys yeah. who couldn't afford a boat could build it. I, I built my first drift boat for under 700 bucks. And Oh, that – so yeah. <laughs> that is that is surprising. Yeah. Go actually, look at what a – because go look at what a hide costs or a clack. Yeah. Well, and it's cool on downhomeboatworks.com. You guys sell plans because mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think the unstated best thing about what you guys offer with the plans is the ability to make it yourself. I mean that it's got There's got to be something special about it's like tying your own flies. Like when you catch a fish with your own fly for the first time, I, I mean, it, there's something special about it and it's got to be the same when you when you go through the time and effort to build your own boat, that's got to be. Yeah. There's, and there's memories in that too, which is important stuff as well. Like I, the, I have a couple boats in my barn. Well, more than a couple right now. And yeah, that becomes a little bit of a problem. I built one for my youngest daughter. She's 16 now, but I built that boat for her with her when she was six or seven. It's just a little pram. Wow. And uh, we use it on the pond and stuff. And it's, I, I see it in the barn against the wall there and it, it could use a coat of paint and it's been left outside and whatever. But I just think all the memories in there. I can't like, ever a lot of get rid of that one. Yeah. yeah. And then like the, the hall designs that I have are my own. Like they've evolved from, and I always nod back to the, 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 the guys who came before me. It's like, it's my iteration of this. Is, is all it is. It's the same thing we do with tying flies. You tie a hopper, you borrow from this guy's pattern and this one, and this little piece is your own here, but it's all iterative. And when I'm, I'm all like very conscious to pay respects to the, those who came before us. 
but my my iterations were purposeful right so where i live and i mentioned the yak and there's a couple other rivers that we fish and some lakes that we fish i didn't need the kind of boat once we learned i learned what i was doing on the oars and everything i didn't need the kind of boat that they need to run the rogue river or the mackenzie river or any of that stuff where those things initially were born and my hulls could be flatter flatter gives me more surface area on the water maybe a little less responsive but i wouldn't say not responsive but what that did offer was higher draft mm-hmm. or less draft sitting higher on the surface which means all that summertime skinny water that we have i can still float through and not how drag. Well- what sort of like water levels are you looking at as a minimum when you when you go out? I've I this summer I fished I fished on the yacht during a pretty bad dry spell and it was skinny 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 stuff and oddly some of our best cicada fishing happens when the water is the lowest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have a couple. You just can't well. help yourself. You yeah, so you gotta there. go. And I was going through places where I'm I'm looking ahead. I'm just looking. I'm like, okay, any second now is gonna be the the, this is the sound. And then I'm gonna have to get out and drag. And I'm like, we're still going. Like incredible. Four inches of water or something. Wow. Four, but one rock one rock will, will stop you, right? Yep. But yeah, my, my boats will sit we'll sit we'll sit in four inches of water, no problem. That is incredible. Yeah. But you put I mean, a that, foot of water under me, I'm good. Ten inches of water, we're, we're good. I'm not. You're having a hard time. Your oars are hitting the bottom, but you're not. Yeah, you're it. like propelling along the the rocks. Yeah. But interesting. And how going back to the cicadas too. So two questions. One is what sort of like technique are you using when you're when you're fly fishing if you're just waiting, and then mm-hmm. secondly, does anything change when you're in the boat? Yeah, I, I mean, so I'll start with the with the boat stuff first. I, I love fishing from a boat because of the access to maybe unpressured spots, right? It's less, mm-hmm. you can ride a bike, take a long walk to get to a spot. Waiting, you have this advantage to work a finite piece of water very thoroughly. Floating, you blow through stuff at times. Unless you got a couple guys casting or people casting, you're not fishing at all and you're working on the oars. So there's advantages to both waiting. You're working what's in front of you pretty darn thorough and you're picking up opportunities to catch fish that you might actually blow by. I've had it on the boat where we're hooked up and floating. And then you're looking like, Oh my God, there goes another one. And there goes another one. And there goes another (laughs) one. And like you're past them now. And it's got to row back upstream and set back up and all that or just blow on through and, and whatever. So waiting, that's awesome for highly densely populated water because <laughs> uh-huh. you're not missing opportunities. Like you're, you have the ability to pick it all through. And I know like nymph guys, like they love, they all wait. And that's why, because they have a, they have a system of gritting out the water and fishing three feet from them to 20 feet from them and working a whole piece and all that. And that's awesome. And like spay fishing, I do a lot of is another really meditative aspect of fly fishing and it's waiting too. You're, you're, 
pretty hard to spade cast from a moving boat and all that. It can be done, but yeah. it's not not necessarily what it's for. But then from a boat fishing cicadas, I really I really enjoy that because again, getting away from pressured water, new fish, fish that haven't seen a fake bug or whatever, and the vantage point. So if you think like of you're standing you're standing, standing high six feet up yeah yeah you're standing above the water at the front of a drift boat and we're fishing far cast towards the bank where the overhanging trees are where likely cicadas are falling and where those fish are hunting them mm-hmm. now cicadas will be all over the river and fish will take them wherever they they happen but i like that and i like that ability to have that higher vantage point and fishing downstream to fish getting a long drift to them before they know you're there. It's just are are you changing your your fishing technique at all for cicadas? It's actually are you stripping more? Or are you okay? Let's just it's get that thing in the water. I'll see you this year or definitely next year. But you'll yeah. laugh. I mean, I'm carrying. So if I'm weight fishing, I'm carrying one rod, and it's probably a five or six weight, weight forward line. I like Scientific Angler's Bass Taper for this stuff. Okay. I have leader formulas in the book that I use. Oh, sweet. And okay. you'll look at my fly box. You won't find anything but cicadas. I don't, Good, there's well, no I wouldn't point. expect you to. You, I don't carry anything else when, when it's a cicada <laughs> emergence. There's no point to. I don't want to catch that fish that's not eating cicada. Let's me, let me put it right. that way. Yeah, <laughs> I want to. I'm hunting that fish. Fat that fish. Just, yeah. I'm hunting that fish that's hunting cicada. So it's yeah. simplified. But it's, and I, I talk about techniques a lot in the book. But the the gist of it is this: is a cicada is only in the water by accident, and when it's in the water, it is almost certain death. It's mm-hmm. gonna die there. It's going to get eaten. They have no ability to extract themselves from the water. Mm-hmm. Now, if they get swept into a log jam or like brush or something, they can grab on and crawl out. But by far and large, once they're in the water, they're dead. You'll find them mostly sitting dead still. Either their mm-hmm. wings folded up, like the cover of the book, like that, mm-hmm. or their wings spread out. You'll see some of them buzzing and moving around but eventually they stop and it's a dead drift i don't pop my flies i don't strip my flies dead drift interesting okay let them sit a lot of times you'll get you'll get if a fish if they're if you're amongst fish that are like super actively hunting bugs and this is like especially true for trout in densely trouty water mm-hmm. like tr- water with a lot of trout they're competing there's no doubt about it. Bug hits the water. Three fish come at it and one gets it. It's just it's like bluegill nice pro- fishing on a pond. It's so, a nice problem to have. A nice problem yeah. to have, right? So you'll 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 often get explosive takes just as soon as you hit the water. Okay. And then other times you let that thing drift. So casting above where a fish might be holding or whatever and just letting it dead drift and you still might get an explosive take, but it'll be after a five or six foot drift. Hmm. So, yeah, it's that'll be fun. I gotta go find them this year. And it's it, it's sloppy too. It's imagine what you're fishing. I told you a size four fly, all foam, with some wings. It's not delicate. 
and you're using stout tippet it's a whole lot of fun it's so, like top water streamer fishing but okay it, and for anyone that's listening i see that we've got x i i i and we have x i x potentially coming this year we do not potentially we do not potentially sorry <laughs> and it looks like we got for the first one is michigan wisconsin indiana illinois and iowa and then the other one is a little bit farther south yeah alabama arkansas up to maryland mississippi yeah. if you want the full list go get the book but so it could be so it's going to be a good year for fishing in a lot of these places yeah, it's so it's an oddball year, right? So 17 times 13 is 221. So hmm. the last time these two broods, XIX and X, the last time these both co-emerged was 1803, 221 years ago. And Oh, right, because one <laughs> is a 13 and one is a 17. Okay. Yeah. So that uh, doesn't that, uh, so happen. What, what, so sorry, what was the year? The, what was the year again? 1803, I think. 1803. 221 that, years minus 2024, right? That is so, cool. So this is is a it's an opportunity to have 17 states maybe listed there or 20 states listed there. Have will yeah. have cicadas. It's a will have got to go find it do some scouting the book the big portion of the book is first understanding this bug and its ecology around it and then the second part is how do i go find it to fish it and there's a lot to that there's a mm -hmm. lot to looking things up finding finding areas that you know are going to have bugs but then not only that but going at the right time I know lots of guys who went to, to 2021 to, to hit Brood X and they went too early and they dismissed it. And they said, hmm. yeah, we ah. saw two or three bugs, fish weren't eating them, went golfing, didn't hmm. go back. If you went back three or four days later, you might still be talking Tr about it. trillion fish in Maine, or trillion trillion, trillion cicadas bugs, yeah. in Maine. Yeah. yeah, so that that's how it happens. So you you have to pay attention to the signs. You have okay. to you have to you know you gotta you narrow it down like from like a forty thousand foot view. I know it's going to be in area A. Okay, what waterways are there? Go lower. Now, where's there like big forests and like old. Like parks or whatever it is, or a lake yeah. with a big shoreline. Okay, let's go further. And now we start hunting and saying, okay, when did the last go go on the internet and find like when did it emerge last? And hey, May twenty fourth, two thousand four was like someone said billions of bugs. And I was like, okay, I probably want to be there. But you remember this? Just because the bugs are there doesn't mean the fish in the water know know it yet. It mm -hmm. takes some time. Right, so, so day one might not be. Day one, they, they don't know what it is. Right. And, oh, one hits the water. Pfft, that doesn't constitute great fishing. Wait a week when you said a trillion bugs. Take <laughs> one 
one percent of that falls in the water that's a million bucks yeah <laughs> or whatever it is uh, gonna okay it so out. now now fish know what they are and yeah. so it's a it's a game of and i know it's tough because family with kids finite time yeah. off and all this crap that's almost some of the fun but it's almost some of the oh it tastes bad when you were too early and it <laughs> you so almost want to be, be too late you almost yeah. want to be too late. You, if you're on the, if you're on the side of it where you're too late versus too early, I'd rather be too late because fish knew what they were. They're yeah. still around. They'll eat them all summer. I, I've proven this. Like after a cicada emergence here, I was still throwing cicada patterns into August periodical skit, <laughs> and I was catching fish. And our annuals didn't really start yet. So like I knew they they were still there's one of those things I haven't seen one of them in a while. Oh, wow. I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty awesome. Cool. Yep. Nice. Well, I have kept you over. I appreciate your time. But here on Mending on the Fly, we end with the whip finish. Yeah. Do you have any last parting thoughts or ways to get a hold of you? Ways to follow you on social media? Yeah, absolutely. So I don't Facebook. Never had a Facebook account. And, um, good for you. It's gonna be fifty, so it's good. I'm not gonna sign. But up. Now's the time to join. <laughs> now's yeah. the time to not sign up. Right. It's time to declutter. Um, right. Instagram yeah. is is a good way. My website you mentioned www.downhomeboatworks.com. I have a contact page there. It goes directly to an email that I have check every day. And um, I'll link that well, in the yeah. podcast description as well. Great way to get a hold of me there. Instagram is another way. Direct message me. It's public account at Down Home Boatworks. Hashtag Cicada Madness. So if you just look up that hashtag, you're going to see a ton of my stuff and stuff I've found that I've tagged and put there. So um, building that up. And Do you have a preferred way for folks to buy the book? I know Amazon and then through the publisher is available. Is there one that can it doesn't, you say it one, doesn't, one um, benefits you more than the other? No, it doesn't doesn't benefit me more than the other. Now, I am going to be uh, at the Penswoods chapter, Trout Unlimited, Cabin Fever, this coming weekend in Cranberry Township, Pennsylvania. So I'll be there with books. You can buy them in person. I'm also selling some of my 17-year itch pattern fly. And then on March 2nd, unfortunately, and- this won't come out until the 26th. So yeah, that's you'll right. have to tell people about it. Yeah. And then March 2nd and 3rd, I will be at the Lancaster fly fishing show. So awesome. I'll be at the author's author's booth there. You can buy books there. I'll be selling some flies, tying some flies as well. Be there both days. And then, yeah, I'm so to buy the book. Amazon has it. The publisher has it. Anywhere online you can buy books, you can find my book. It's on Stackpole Books, which is a renowned sporting publisher. They're, they sell everywhere and distribute widely, and that, that's the reason why I, I went with Stackpole Books for this. If you do buy it on Amazon, please leave me a review. Please leave a review for the book. That always helps. So, But reach out. I'm an approachable guy. DM me on Instagram or whatever, and always always love talking fish and boats and cicadas and who knows? Might find might find my next best friend out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, and like for anyone that's listened this far, I hope there are many. I, it, it is almost nine o'clock at night on Monday, on a holiday, and Dave still took the time to do this and talk to me. And he is a genuinely nice human being. 
humble. And it was really a, a pleasure talking to you, Dave. I, I really appreciate the time. And I look forward to sharing the water with you someday. Absolutely, Devin. It's, uh, I wish you all the, all the best in your podcast adventures. This was pleasurable on my end as well. So thanks for having me and I'll connect soon. Yeah, man, that sounds good. And uh, will you be in Towson by any chance? And uh, towards the end of March, the Maryland Fly Fishing Festival? No, I don't know. Okay. I don't No, I won't be in Towson. No. Um, okay. Well, I'll see if I can make it up to Lancaster. That'd be good. Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Dave, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Got it.